So Peter has been talking about the uh, second coming of Jesus Christ, and he's been talking it as about that it is a factual reality, not like the false teachers seem to be saying. We'll see that when we get to chapter two, that it was some myth or some story. Uh, last time, Peter told us that along with the apostle James and the apostle John, they were eyewitnesses to a preview of the second coming of the glory of Jesus Christ, an event that we call the transfiguration because it says in the gospels that Jesus was transfigured. So they saw the glory of the Lord Jesus to be revealed and then they heard the voice of God the Father from heaven that was affirming the deity or the fact that Jesus Christ is in fact God become a man. Tonight, Peter moves us on to uh, what he will call the prophetic word or, or the, what we call the word of God. And he's going to describe it as a light that shines in a dark place. And so the title of our message tonight is A Word You Can Trust. And so the prophets or the Old Testament Bible writers saw the first and second coming as well. And that's part of what Peter's case is that he is making in these final verses of chapter one. Therefore, he tells us we do well, he'll tell us tonight, we do well to heed the word of God, which would include the Old Testament. Uh, tonight, he also gives us a unique insight into the origin and the nature of the word of God, what we commonly refer to as the inspiration of Scripture. In other words, how did we get the Bible? Now, if you're new to the Bible, you'll say, well, I don't, I don't understand what, what, it, what all of this means, this inspiration of Scripture. It means that the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, is supernatural in origin. And at this time, uh, in terms of when the apostles were writing, they did have these letters that were circulating. I would be one of the opinion that, that there was a lot of these letters that were circulating, but only some were to be were, ended up being considered the actual word of God. And, and so uh, at this time, they had already had what we call the Old Testament. There'd been 400 years of silence before the gospel of the events of the gospel of Matthew really took place. And we always call in that, uh, that page in between the 400 year blank page between your Old Testament and New Testament. And now the, the New Testament is beginning to emerge. Letters have been written for many years now, uh, probably maybe 20 years that, that the, when the Peter is writing right now. He's writing about probably in the early 60s AD. And in fact, in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter's going to refer to the letters of the Apostle Paul as Scripture. He's going to comfort all of us and say, you know what? I'm an apostle. And even find, I even find him a little confusing sometimes. Makes you feel good, doesn't it? Sometimes you read it and you're like, what is he talking about? And here, Peter himself is writing the Bible. So let's begin where we left off, verse 19. I want to read verse 19 twice. He says, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So let's go slowly. He says, And so. And some of your versions say, Above all. So, so with all we've been saying in chapter 1, he says, and so, or above all, we, 
Now, who's we? Probably the apostles and the legit teachers of the gospel or the apostles and their teaching have the prophetic word. Now, some people think, is that just prophecy or is that the entirety of the Bible? I lean towards the entirety of the Bible, but it's okay. We have the prophetic word. Remember, words change meaning over time. It could be the words written by the prophets. Uh, confirmed. We have the prophetic word confirmed. Some versions say strongly confirmed. Other versions say more fully confirmed. Uh, another one says we have the prophetic word made more certain. If you have the old King James Version, the King James Version says a more, sh more sure word of prophecy. And then he goes on to say, which you do well to heed or pay attention to and obey as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So Peter is teaching, we talked about this last time, that the transfiguration, when they went up to the top of the mountain with Jesus and they saw him you know, in all his glory, white, and he was talking with Moses and Elijah, that confirmed the Old Testament messianic prophecies. In other words, Peter is saying, you can trust the Old Testament. Maybe some people were starting to think that you couldn't. False teachers are perhaps going around saying, well, you know, they kind of got that stuff wrong. Peter's saying, no, 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 they didn't get it wrong at all. You can trust the Old Testament. And if you want to be really specific, he's saying you can trust the Old Testament prophecies as they relate to judgment and salvation, as they relate to what we call the second coming of Jesus Christ, what the Old Testament Bible writers called. Whenever you see this, think second coming. They called it the day of the Lord. So whenever you see that, think second coming. So the transfiguration is not only, okay, the, is not the only witness of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying the Old Testament prophecies, the Old Testament word of God is a witness as well. And that's one of the reasons why we go out of our way to study the Old Testament here. I know some guys say, well, I only, I only teach the New Testament on Sundays and, and on, on weekdays. Wednesday night or Thursday night midweek Bible studies, and I teach the New Testament on Sundays, we here at our church don't try to do that. We try to give you all different genres of Scripture. And so we've actually done, we're right now on a, another Old Testament prophet. Uh, we did two last year. We're now on another one uh, this year. And so we really think that's important. Now, some of you say, well, you only teach the Old Testament. Well, if you were here before COVID, we spent three years in the Gospel of Matthew. So that was, people would be like, that's a long time. And I felt like I was rushing my way through it, to be honest with you. And so, um, so this is what we call the inspiration of Scripture, okay? And it is God speaking. We can trust the Old Testament. And so why does Peter say this? Because most likely the false teachers who we will encounter in chapter 2 were saying something different. They were leading the people of God astray. And probably the biggest way that people lead, false teachers lead the people of God astray is in regards to judgment. I mean, people don't really want to hear about judgment, do they? 
and so a lot of times they will kind of eliminate that. Now, there's other people that there's not many of them around anymore, but they were for a while that would teach that if you slipped up one time, that you would be judged or you would lose your salvation. Well, that's absolutely ridiculous. That, that's, that's insanity. You have, to, you have to stretch like 500 Bible passages to get to, to, get to something like that. Uh, but usually it's people that, that sort of avoid or uh, you know, get away from the idea of judgment. And so when he says the idea of the prophetic word confirmed or the more sure word, we have to realize that this can be taken a couple or a few different ways. A very common view is that Peter says, I'm more convinced but by what I read in the Old Testament than what I saw at the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, that is very foreign to an American way of thinking. But the logic behind it would go something like this. Peter would be saying, if this is what he's saying, be careful of judging everything in life by experience. And here he would be saying, the word of God is actually more sure, more dependable than your experience. My answer to that, amen. Amen and amen. But most people trust their experience overall. But Peter could be saying that the word of God is more sure than experience actually is. Now, in this view, though, if this is a view that is a legit view, we have to make sure we're not getting the wrong impression of this view. He is not comparing the Old Testament to the transfiguration as to which is more reliable. What he is comparing is scripture to his eyewitness experience. So he's not saying the transfiguration, well, I don't know, Bible, yes, very reliable. Transfiguration, not so much. No, he's saying that, that we all have to be careful of of thinking that experience is everything. And, and he would be then saying to us, when your experience or what you think is your experience is a contradiction, walk by faith and trust the word of God. And so, you know, a lot of times we, you know, something, do you ever have like a, a bird fly out of the corner of your eye and you're like, what, what did I just see? And you're like, there's nothing there, right? And then all of a sudden you look over and you see a bird flying into a tree or something like that. So he's, you know, he's just saying, just be very, very careful uh, about that. And so here he's saying in regards to the word of God and the transfiguration, there's no contradiction between the two that what he saw his experience and the word of God, they matched up. In other words, the Bible told us about the second coming of Jesus and that was backed up by the experience that he had and the other apostles at the transfiguration. Another view is, as we said, the transfiguration uh, supports the reliability and the certainty of Old Testament prophecies. In other words, Peter is saying that that my experience is backed up by the scripture. And interesting 
<laughs> the way the Bible writers and the apostles think about the second coming, I think it's very different than most of us here in America who you know, are followers of Jesus. I find that for many people that when they're talking about the return of Jesus or Jesus coming back, the main reason they want him to come back is relief of trouble. They don't want anything to be difficult anymore. And while that is true for a follower of Jesus, that's not the way the Bible writers see it. The Bible writers, when they point to the second coming of Jesus, they are pointing to the reign of Jesus Christ. So a lot of American Christians are like, oh, this nightmare of earth is finally going to be over. The prophets and the Bible writers are going, victory at last. At last we have victory. And we're going to get to go be with the king for all eternity. And so in this view, the transfiguration actually authenticates what the Old Testament prophets were saying. Now, it's possible that in the prophecies of the Old Testament, many of the uh, people of God were taking them figuratively, and Peter is now saying an important thing to them, that it is um, an actual physical return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're, you're going to be able to see him coming. Now, that's very interesting because a lot of people would say, you say, well, do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? And they'll say, well, he rose from the dead in my heart. Well, that's not what the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches that Jesus was crucified on the cross. He died on the cross uh, in our place for our sins. So whoever put their trust in him would receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life would be adopted into the family of God. And on Sunday, Easter Sunday, that he came out of that grave in an actual, physical, resurrected body, a preview to the kind of actual, physical, resurrected body that God's people would receive. Uh, that, in turn, when we think of it this way, Peter is really help reminding us that the, of the salvation and judgment of Jesus and getting us to think about which side of the victorious king you are on. There's a big difference between that and all my troubles are going to be over. All my troubles are going to be over. The people who, who just believe you die and go in the ground, they're like, I don't care. All my troubles are going to be over too. We believe the same thing. Big difference. One is, are you going to, but the, the true, true Christianity is it's the victorious return of Jesus Christ, and it is, are you going to be on the winning team or the losing team? Are you going to be part of Christ's victorious return, or are you going to be part of the people that he is coming to um, conquer? Now, this is really important to understand that because he's really saying to us, it's important you know where your trust is. Who are you putting your trust in? Now, most people, what do they say? We've said this many times before. Well, I'm a good person. That's trusting in who? Yourself. And the scriptures teach that trusting in anyone else 
other than Jesus Christ, you will not be on the victorious team. It's a very serious thing to, um, to consider. So, Pastor Jim, are you going to heaven because you're a good person and you're a pastor? Well, I am a pastor. I wouldn't say I'm a good person, but some of you might think I am. I've fooled some of you. But that's not why I would be going to heaven. I'm going to heaven, and I'm confident I'm going to heaven. Why? Because I have trusted in the life and death and resurrection of another, of the Lord Jesus. So it's very important for us to realize, because this is something that is not apparent in the American church, is the high view of the Old Testament that Jesus and the apostles had. Sadly, the church has lost much of that. So people will say, I want nothing to do with the Old Testament. Well, that's, what, two-thirds of your Bible? That was Jesus' Bible? That was the apostles' Bible before they started reading that? Why would you not trust, put your trust in what they put their trust in? And so Peter could be saying, if you don't believe me about this transfiguration, why don't you go back and read your Bible now in light of what we saw and now you will see how the Old Testament makes sense. And, you know, when we study the Old Testament here at Calvary, so often people say, wow, we were studying the Old Testament and, and it's amazing how we got from that centuries before Jesus was born to the cross of Jesus Christ. How, how, how does that happen? Well, I, I, it happens because I steal a Bible study teaching method from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon said, you take the Old Testament text and you draw a plumb line, you draw a straight line to the cross, and the entire time you're trying to understand that text, be looking for the cross. Be looking for Jesus. And that way, instead of just tagging on the cross at the end, you're able to very easily preach Christ out of that Bible text. Now, you can't make him where he's not there, but if he's in that text, you can very easily preach him out of that text. And so uh, sad that the church has lost a lot of their love for the Old Testament. And so Peter is a huge supporter of the Old Testament, and he sees, contrary to what a lot of people see, he sees the Old Testament and the gospel working together. They are not at odds at all. The Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, the arrival of the king. And so Peter points us to a great conclusion about the Old Testament. He says, you do well to heed it. In other words, you need to pay attention to it. We need to pay attention to it. And this is really Peter's point up till now. Pay close attention to the word of God. Study it. Pour over it. Because there will be false teachers who will come along and they keep coming and coming and coming and coming and they're going to come and they're going to twist it or they're going to dismiss it. So 
the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter would strong, so would the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter would strongly disagree with the view that many people have in the church today of the Old Testament. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul said to the Ephesian elders, I did not neglect to declare to you the whole counsel of God. That means I took the entirety of the book, the encouraging parts, the scary parts, the easy parts, the difficult parts, the more interesting parts, the bit more dry parts. I took all of it because it is all God's word, as we'll see in a minute, it's all God's word, and I did not neglect to teach you. Loved ones, the worst thing I could ever do for you is only teach you, only teach you the nice parts of the Bible, the happy verses. That's Pollyanna, right? I, I don't, that's the worst thing I could do for you. And then by the same token is the worst thing I could do is only teach you the most difficult parts, the judgment parts. No, we want to be like Paul. We want to read, preach, study, go over the whole counsel of God. And if you do, he tells us what happens right here. He says, you do well. Now, we don't have a lot of time to go into it, but in our studies in Galatians, we talked about how to apply some of the Old Testament today, especially as it apply, he applied it to, the Apostle Paul applied it to many, many centuries earlier to the life of Abraham. So he's teaching us here when he says you do well, Peter says you do well, it's important to remember to obey the word of God is not just a good thing to do, more importantly, it is the right thing to do. It is the righteous thing to do. Now, this, this again seems to be lost to us today. Remember we saw in Daniel chapter three, those guys were like, hey, our God can save us from the fire. And if he doesn't, it's good. We're fine. We're cool with him. But most people today only want to hear about, and teachers of the Bible know this, or guys who use the Bible, if you want to build a large church, you get literature on this. It's a, it's a simple formula, right? Tell people about the benefits of being a Christian. Tell people about what God's going to give you. Tell people about what God's going to do for you. Tell how he forgives sins, past, present, and future. So if you're sinning now, it's not a big deal. God's going to forgive it. If you're going to sin in the, in the future, not a big deal. God's going to forgive it. Okay? That's not the, what the Bible, the way the Bible writers spoke. They talk about it's not what benefits us that's important. It's about our obedience to the king because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. So we're still in verse 19. He describes the word of God as, as a light that shines in a dark place. Well, what's the dark place? Presumably it's the world, but as we're moving into the false teacher section, it could also be the, the darkness of the teaching of the false teachers. Why is the world and the teaching of the false teachers dark? Because both have turned away from the teaching of the Lord. Well, who is the light? Well, obviously when he was here, it was Jesus. Who or what is the light now? 
Well, it's the word of God and the people of God. So here in the context, the word of God illuminates the people of God with the truth of the end of time. While Peter's saying, or he's going to tell us in chapter 2, the false teachers are preaching a different gospel. Boy, we have to be so careful with the gospel. You add to it, you destroy it. You take away from it, you destroy it. The gospel is what God has done for his glory through the person of Jesus Christ in his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, his return. The gospel is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so Peter is making a logical case because of the reliability of the word of God, we are motivated by grace to obey it. Psalm 119, 105, very popular verse is this. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So when we talk about feet or, or walk, okay, so he says the word of God is a lamp to my feet. Your feet is the way you live. So it's, he's saying your word is what helps me to live for you and it's a light to my path. I know where I'm going and even if I don't know where I'm going, your word is lighting the way. In other words, he's saying the word shows us how to live for you. It shows us how to follow you, how to walk in the paths that you want us to walk or we might call how to walk in the way of Jesus. So the, the, the word of God lights the world. And at the end of verse 19, he says, until the day dawns, almost everybody would say that refers to the second coming. And the morning star, almost everybody would say that's Jesus, rises in your hearts. Well, that's the one that's going to give people some trouble. What does that mean? Well, here Peter points to the day that dawns, the day, the day of the Lord, when those who love the Lord are delivered. They are, they are they're taken with the Lord. They're going to be with the Lord. And those who don't love the Lord will face judgment. Now, in the Old Testament, we see a lot of different battles. And a lot of times those battles are meant to point us to the day when, when the Lord just wipes out a world superpower with his hand. He just, it's going to be that simple and that easy for him. In the New Testament, the day of the Lord is referred to as the day of Christ's return. And in chapter three, we'll see it's, it's when this present world order ceases. So the terminology is the same. It's just that, We've talked about this many times before. The Bible preaches in what we call, or teaches us in what we call progressive revelation. That there are things that will become more common as time went by. Remember, the Bible is written over thousands of years, and so things become more easily understood as time goes on, really culminating in the, in the coming of Jesus Christ to earth. And then further on, in, in, then we're in the last days where we live now in between the first coming and the second coming and things will be made super clear to us 
in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, you may be watching this tonight and you're not a follower of Jesus. I'm thrilled that you're with us, glad that you're hanging in there. I hope you're really gonna hang in when we get to how the word of God actually came into being. But you may scoff at this and you may say all this stuff about the world coming to the end, that's fool's talk. What about all the people who talk about global warming? They talk about the end of the world. What about so many movies that are about the end of the world? What about the people who are concerned that somebody's going to blow up the world with nuclear weapons? You see, the end of the world is not just our thing as followers of Jesus. It's something that the world actually thinks about quite a bit. And, And the Bible writers are consistent in pointing to the fact that God has, is, and will intervene in history as he did with God becoming a man, the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he will with the second coming of Jesus Christ. So first he uses this term morning star, morning star. Now, he could be connecting us to what Moses said in Numbers 24, 17, a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter, what does a king hold? A scepter. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. Right after that, the Lord goes on to say that he's going to crush his enemies. Interestingly enough, at the very end of the Bible, Revelation twenty-two sixteen, Jesus calls himself the morning star. So we'll say that the morning star is Jesus. And, and notice he says this morning star. So the day that dawns is the second coming. The morning star is Jesus. And he says, this morning star rises in your heart. Now, there's a lot of debate associated with that. However, the way Peter is writing to people in churches, I don't get any feeling at all he's talking about any form of terror. I don't think he's talking about, it just seems like, oh, he's he's going to rise in your heart. Some say it's the transformation that will take place when the Lord Jesus returns, that we're we're going to be transformed and we're going to be different people. Could be, but it also could be more than that. It, It seems to me that we should connect it to the light that that remember, he said that there will be a light in a dark place and that will change at the second coming. Well, what's the big change? When the morning star comes, there will be no more darkness to which prophecy has pointed and will now finally arrive in the person of Jesus Christ. So he'll rise in your heart. For a follower of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus will be a great day. It will be the best of days filled with joy and a much greater experience of knowing the Lord Jesus. But until then, verse 19 tells us that we live according to the light of the word of God. What is that? Another call to a high view of the scripture. It's no different uh, for us than the people Peter is writing to. As followers of Jesus... 
we are to live in anticipation of Christ's return. Why? Well, we're not only looking for the second coming, but when we're going through the Bible, we constantly remember that the second coming is part of the apostolic gospel. That is part of the gospel. I think so many times people just think it's just the forgiveness of sins. Oh, it's so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than that. And, and since this is an essential part of the gospel, that we live in anticipation of the Lord's coming, we know that now, as we're waiting, it comes with the power of the Holy Spirit to live as people of the light in the midst of a dark world. So we live now, or we are to live now, as people who are waiting for Jesus. Now, we've said this over and over again. It always bears repeating. Waiting on the Lord doesn't mean this. Hmm, where is he? What's going on? What are you doing, man? Just waiting on the Lord, just waiting on the Lord. That's not what it means. Waiting on the Lord is what we do while we are waiting for the Lord to return. So we should be busy about his business because we want to be found being faithful when he returns, not being lazy. Matthew 5, 14 through 16, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. So right now, we're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So what, is our, what are we doing while we're waiting for the Lord? We are giving light to the world, or that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be giving the light of what? The gospel of Jesus Christ to the world while we are waiting for the return of Jesus. Verse 16, how do we do it? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So let's look at verse 20 and 21. We'll read them through and then we'll go through them slowly. Knowing this first that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation... For prophecy, now interesting, he's mentioned that word prophecy or prophetic in each of the last three verses. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So let's go slowly, verse 20. Knowing this first. So he says, you have to understand this about the Bible. You have to that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, there's generally, there's more, there's variations on all of this stuff, but there's generally two ways to read this. And I'm going to call on two different versions to make it easier for me, really. One is know, he, that he says, knowing this first... No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Another version, which I think is better, but we'll go through both of them, says that knowing this first, 
that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. Now, honestly, I like them both. But let's go over, let's go over the first one that no that the, the the interpretation doesn't come from someone's own interpretation. So we must be careful of this stuff. And this is the kind of stuff that it's funny because sometimes you hear somebody and they go, oh, I, I went to this Bible study with these people at this church. And I'm like, oh, well, how was it? How was it? They were like, Pastor Jim, it was a heresy factory. <laughs> it was one bad misstatement about God after the other. Thank you for teaching us the Bible. And, and, and so we must be careful of people when they say, well, I think that means, or, or this is what it means to me. Um, but on the other side of the coin, we, we must also realize the prophets didn't come up with these prophecies on their own. Peter's saying they came from the Lord. So when we look at this verse and the two major ways to interpret it, it comes down to one of two things. Is he talking about the origin of prophecy, the origin of scripture, or our interpretation of it? While I think both are true, that, that the origin of prophecy is from God, and we need to be careful of our own interpretation of it, I'm definitely siding with the origin of the prophecy being from God is what he's talking about. So I think that verse 19, he's referring to the origin, that God's prophecy, specifically here, the prophecy of the second coming, okay, um, and we'll see that in chapter 2 that there's some pretty bad interpretations that were circling in the churches he's writing to that came from the false teachers. Now, um, concerning origin, and we've seen this throughout church history, there are plenty of false teachers that say, hey, the prophets got it wrong. The prophets got it wrong, and they are correcting it. These people say that they have the fuller revelation. So, there a lot of them are on TV that, you know, we have a fuller revelation. You say, well, the Apostle Paul said this. Their answer, he was arrogant. He was arrogant. No, he's not the arrogant one. <laughs> okay? Or they say, Jesus was rich. He was crazy rich. You say, well, it says in the Bible that the son of, Jesus said the son of man, his favorite name for himself, had nowhere to hang his head. And they go, what he means by that is that in that town, he didn't have a mansion. He had mansions in a lot of other towns, but in that town, he didn't have a mansion. Okay, that's some pretty serious scripture twisting. That's some pretty serious scripture teaching. And their answer is, well, we have the fuller revelation. Other people have added certain sacraments centuries earlier, added certain sacraments and said, if you do this, you'll be saved. Well, uh, communion is no longer a piece of bread. Now it's the body and blood of Jesus and the wine. All these things that they add on. Why? That's just another way of saying that they have the fuller revelation. Now think about that for a second. That is actually saying that God, the creator of all, the one who sees the end from the beginning, couldn't get it together enough to write in a book to tell us everything he wanted to tell us 
So we have put people on television or, or writing centuries ago with long robes, looking spiritual, to say God told us really what he meant. Or God is adding things. Or God is changing things. And now he's telling us this stuff. You know, I, one time I, when I had been doing the Gospel of John here, reading, uh, doing John 15, and was watching a guy on TV, and I, my wife says, what are you watching him for? And I said, oh, he's, he's doing John 15. I just finished John 15, and, or just about at the end of John 15. And she goes, how is it? I go, it's fantastic. And she says, I thought you didn't like the guy. I said, I can't stand the guy. She said, you just said he's fantastic. I said, oh, it's fantastic, the lies he's making up. I don't even think he's read the chapter. I think he's just go- saying whatever comes off to the top of his head. Why, he, why can he get away with that? Because he says that he has the fuller revelation. And some people think, oh, very spiritual, very spiritual. But Peter is countering here by saying the prophets got both the prophecy and the interpretation from God. Now, interestingly enough, originally, the Jews regarded the written word, the word of God, to be far superior to the spoken word, even if that word claimed to be from heaven. On the other hand, it makes perfect sense but when we're talking, that we're talking about the origin of Scripture when Peter is going to tell us in the next chapter that the false teachers basically interpret Scripture to support their own views. And that's very common. That's very common. That means that they're fighting against the apostolic interpretations. They're fighting against what we call the historic Christian faith. This would mean that Peter is claiming here that God has given the Old Testament prophecies to the Old Testament Bible writers, and he's given the interpretations of those prophecies in light of Jesus Christ to the apostles and and, and as they write the New Testament and teach the Word of God. So... Some of you are familiar with something we call inductive Bible study. And it's a good way to study the Bible. And uh, there's a lot of variations upon it. Some people do a three-prong method. Some do four. Some do five. I've heard as high as seven. And and I'm just going to go through three that you might have heard. What does it say? What does it mean? And what does it mean to me? All across America... People would say that they use this method, but they skip number two. They go from, what does it say, what does it mean to me? So somebody leading a Bible study would say, they'd read a verse and they go, so what do you think it means? And people say, well, I think it means this, and I think it means that, and I think it means this. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. See, the most important thing is what does it mean, and that you need to take the context of what the apostle is talking about. Remember, context is king or what the Bible writer is talking about in the context of the book uh, or, the, or the, you know, of the story or whatever's going on in the context of the book of that Bible, in the context of the Testament, in the context of the entire Bible itself. See, 
you can't say what it means to you until you understand what God meant by it when he said it. Or else that is a prescription for heresy. Now, sometimes people use more technical terms. They will say, number one, observation. What does it say? Read the text. What does it say? Two, interpretation. Not your interpretation. What is the biblical interpretation in light of using a good, what we call hermeneutic, the art and science of biblical interpretation. And then what does it mean to me? That means how do I apply it? Now that I know what God said, what he meant for, it to, for me to do with it, now how do I apply it? And then sometimes people will add a fourth one, implementation. But again, it's so important that interpretation is what did the author mean? Now, let me get into really some more meddling. A lot of people will say this. You may, perhaps you've seen this bumper sticker, although you don't see so many Christian bumper stickers as, as you used to. And, um, and so they will say this. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. May I be so bold as to say... Someone, you will say, no, Jim, you're being rude right now. God said it. Amen. I believe it. Who cares? That settles it. Amen. Okay? It should be, God said it. That settles it. It doesn't matter whether I believe it or not. It's good that I believe it. But ultimately, whether I believe it or not does not change the fact that what God says is true. So when we think about verse 20, I'm very comfortable saying the Holy Spirit gave the word of God to the prophets and the interpretations of it, the fuller, complete interpretations of it concerning Jesus to the apostles and I will add, just to, to, to keep us all honest, we must be very careful in how we treat the Word of God. Why? Lots of best-selling Christian books, particularly some of the devotionals, lots of best-selling Christian books and devotionals, Lots of famous, famous television and internet pastors. Lots of radio disc jockeys on your favorite Christian music radio station are plain and simply off. Now you're saying, well, that, that's, that's really mean of you to say that, Pastor Jim, because there's lots of interpretations. No, not really. There's really not. When you get well-studied people in a room, there are slight variations on certain things, but they're pretty much in agreement on the core essentials of the Christian faith. Remember the Apostle Paul. When I came to you, I pretended to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. What is he saying? It's about Jesus. The Bible, I know this is bad news for a lot of people, the Bible is not about you. It's not. It's about Jesus 
It is about how we live in light of who Jesus is and what he has done, but it is not about us. Not only that, Peter's point is no prophet comes up with prophecy. No prophet comes up with the word of God by himself. You say, how do you know? Verse 21. For prophecy never came. In fact, I'll read this twice. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Let's go slowly. For prophecy, for the word of God, for the prophetic word of God, never came, some versions say, never was produced by or never came by the will of man. In other words, what we have here, guys didn't just think, yeah, this this makes sense. I, I get it. I get it. This makes a lot of sense. He's like, no, 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 no. That's, that's what you think is not right. Or, or, or just guys are like, hey, this would be a good idea to write this. No, that, that, that's not right. What's the reason we know it didn't come about by the will of man? Because all these tremendous amounts of prophecies that have come true shows us that it, the word of God is divine in origin. So for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God, most versions just say men. Some versions say, uh, but prophets through though human. So, but holy men of God spoke, a lot add spoke from God as they were moved. Some of your versions say as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what does he clearly say in verse 21? This didn't come about by themselves. They got all of what they wrote from God. Now, this important verse tells us where and how we got the Bible from. This is often referred to as uh, the dual authorship of Scripture. And we're going to take a little bit to unpack that. What does it mean? It means that God inspired the Bible people wrote it. Prophets spoke. The Bible writers wrote. But God made sure that what was written was his word. He made sure of it. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit was the source of what the Bible writers were writing. This is why Peter said in verse 20, the word of God was not from their own head. It didn't come from their own head. Now, it's very interesting. These verses, we're going in order. 19, 20, 20, 21. See what a good counter I am? But actually, a statement is made and then it's supported by the next verse. And a statement is made and it's supported by the next verse. So with your Bible open, if you have your Bible open, let's look at these verses backwards. Verse 21, he says, the Holy Spirit guided the Bible writers. 
Verse 20, he says, the Bible didn't come from the Bible writers. In verse 19, he says, we have the sure word of God. It's very interesting. You're like, that's confusing. But to me, it makes all the sense in the world. Again, verse 21, the Holy Spirit guided the Bible writers. Verse 20, the Bible didn't come from the Bible writers. Verse 19, we have the sure word of God. Looking at it this way, Peter's point is clearly the divine origin of the word of God, the prophet's and the apostles' interpretation, not ours. That's why in in Bible study, the real work is figuring out what did God mean. That's that's the real work. You know, a, a lot of what I do when I get something ready is, and this part this part is I love, is trying to figure out what God was saying, and it requires. Things like, like I just said, reading the text over and over again and in different versions, and I have different, you know, language tools that I have on my computer and books that I have and uh, on that. And then sometimes looking at a text backwards. And, 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 and to me, that, I call that the discovery portion. Oh, I love that. I love that. I could do that all day long. Outlining it, not quite as exciting putting it into format so I can explain it in, in, a, in a way that, that people uh, can understand. I don't want to say that's boring because it's not boring, but I actually always pray to God that he would make it a labor of love that I would love to do because that, that, that can be not that easy. You know how it's easy sometimes you got something in your head you understand to get it out of your mouth is not always that easy to do if it's, it's something that maybe is a little bit complex. And so, and so that's why a lot of guys don't teach verse by verse because they're like, oh my gosh, it's just so much work. I get it. So let's look at a couple examples of how even the Bible writers knew this is what God was doing. They knew this is how God was writing the Bible. In 2 Samuel 23, these are the last words of King David. Verse 1, it calls him the anointed of God, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And then 2 Samuel 23, 2 says this. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me. This is David speaking. This is what he says. This is the, this is the first thing he said. The last words he says this is the first sentence. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me. And his word was on my tongue. So what is he saying? God put it on my tongue. Now, some of you say, well, did he put it in your pen? A lot of times he might, maybe he's in, he, you would tell, they would just say, hey, start writing. So they'd have somebody in the room with them. They would call them an amanuensis, dictation. But we're going to talk about why scripture is not God dictating. But the Bible writer would dictate to someone and say, Man, just, just start writing. I'm just going to start talking. Just start, just start writing. Jeremiah 1.9, Jeremiah said this, Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Let's go to the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 14.37. 37. 
The Apostle Paul says, If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. Like, I'm not getting this stuff from myself. I'm getting it from God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. 16 is a very popular verse. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? Before we get to verse 17, why? Why do we here at Calvary Chapel, Morris Hills, study the word of God so very carefully? He gives us the answer in verse 17. That the man or woman, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we are ready to do what God has for us to do. So here in verse 21, Peter says negatively that the word of God did not originate with men. He's even writing Bible here. It didn't come from me. Positively, he says what? It didn't come from men. Negatively, positively, it comes from God. That's why the Bible is called the inspired word of God, not the dictated word of God. God didn't dictate it to them so they would write because if he did, they would all be written in the same style. No, he inspired the word of God. Now, this is not the same as going, you know, Yesterday was such a beautiful day. I was just inspired to go out and weed my, you know, flower bed. That, that's a different kind of inspiration. <laughs> that's like a good idea to spend a nice, beautiful day. And then, of course, be sore the next day. But, but that, that, that's that. Or that's not, um, you got to be careful when people, when you, say, you hear people constantly saying stuff like, well, God told me. Well, God told me. Why did you do this? Well, God told me. Hey, you, you were supposed to meet us and help us with that thing. Why didn't you? God told me not to go. That's like such baloney, really. Your baloney media should be going, eh, 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 when people say stuff like that to you. So God told you to lie. God told you to not keep your word. Are you, are you being serious? Now, there are certain people who will reserve it only for certain moments. You can take them a lot more seriously, and it matches up with Scripture. I don't have a problem with that. What's the difference Look at the end of verse 21. He says, they wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Other versions say, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, it's an interesting word, that word moved or carried along. It's the same word that's used in Acts 27 that describes a ship being carried along by the wind. So the illustration goes like this. Okay, you're the ship. You put the sails up, and the Holy Spirit carries you along. It's the wind that carries you along. So let's take an example of how the prophets would have, this would have happened. They would have a vision, and they wouldn't say, oh, well, this is what I think that means. Let's just keep writing. They would wait to see if the Lord showed them what that vision meant. Probably here, Peter could be, rather than using 
the wind example per se, equating it to the transfiguration and giving us a good way to interpret the Bible. He said, we saw the transfiguration. We remember from last week, we heard the voice of God. Peter, it's like, hey, we should build a tabernacle, right? We saw the transfiguration. We, th- we, we saw it. We, we made an interpretation. Let's build a tabernacle. God yells out to us, would you please listen to my son? Don't come up with your own ideas. We're, I'm going to tell you what this is all about. Now, once again, we, we, we sometimes refer to this as the dual authorship of Scripture. Some people call this, theologians call this concurrence. Concurrence. What, what does that mean? That there is what we call divine causation upon the Bible writers as they're writing the Bible. In other words, God is the primary cause who is acting upon the secondary cause who is the Bible writer as they are writing the Bible. So it's an important point and a bit of a mystery that the word of God is also from human beings Here, this version says, holy men who spoke from God. Now, Peter's not saying um, that that God dictated everything to say to them. Again, God was ensuring they were writing the right things. What God did actually was he used their personality and their style and just the way they were. So Jeremiah's kind of a bummer. He's kind of a sad guy. Peter is, his writing is a bit more all over the place. John, the apostle John, he's a bit more of a mystic. The apostle Paul, I mean, you know, uh, my understanding is when when you talk to law students, I mean, they'll tell you that writing legal briefs is tough, tough work. But the Apostle Paul writes like he's writing a legal brief. While he's not always the easiest to understand, he's easy to outline because he's like, a, he's like an attorney making a logical case to a jury. And he's saying, well, this is this, and this is that, and this is this. And, and so he, God uses a Luke, a, a careful historian, So God uses their personality of who they were, doesn't compromise their personality, but makes sure what they are writing is true. For example, just the difference in the use of words. In the Gospel of John, he uses the word signs. And in John's Gospel, signs are used by Jesus to authenticate who he is, the Son of God, and to help people to believe. But that same word signed in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're negative. He used them in a negative, he used them in a negative, oh, you just want a sign, that's what you want. You, you don't really want God, you just want a sign. And that 
is an example of how it points to us in what Peter is teaching us here, that without compromising their personality and their person and who they are, God still is moving them along to write correct things. Peter is saying the Holy Spirit made sure that the Bible writer's own words accurately represented the views, the teaching, and the heart of God, not the way the false teachers were doing this stuff. Jeremiah 23, 16, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They make you worthless. They speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. Wow. They make you worthless. Listen to those guys to your own peril. Ezekiel 13, 3, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. God says, I didn't show them anything, but they're telling you that they did. Like the one guy years ago, I forget his name. Um, he was like, yeah, God brought me up to heaven. The and funny, the apostle Paul goes to heaven. He's like, I couldn't really describe it to you. I don't think the words, I, there's no English words to describe what I saw. This guy goes, yeah, I went up to heaven and there was Jesus sitting on the sidewalk, you know, on the curb and he was all bummed out. And he, he said, I brought you here to encourage me. I mean, come on, come on, come on. Flick the TV off when people start saying stuff like that. Really. I mean, just go to bed. It's late. You know, those guys are on in the middle of the night. That's ridiculous. Today, what do we see? Um, a, lot of, a lot of twisting of the scripture. A lot of twisting of the truth. Shaving the truth not telling people the hard stuff, telling people what they want to hear just so the church is big. Be careful that you're, that you're again, reading the right kinds of materials, the right kinds of devotionals. Um, be careful in Bible studies where what you think something means is the most important thing. Be very careful of a pastor who uses the Bible but doesn't teach the Bible. Because you could take almost anything out of context and you can make it to say almost anything you want. So picking and choosing which scriptures to obey is dangerous practice. Many people say, oh, well, I don't do that. You know, loved ones, you might just do that. And this is a time to be honest about this and ask ourselves, are we really holy men and women of God? Is our... Is our life practice becoming more and more in the way of Jesus? And if it isn't, we're off, even if false teachers tell you it doesn't matter. Because it does matter. It does matter. The Bible writers have a lot to do. <laughs> They've got a lot to teach us about attitude. You see... They believe God. The scripture says that God doesn't lie. So when they come across something that they don't like or they have to find a trouble, there may be an initial reaction. Sometimes there is from some of the Bible writers. But eventually they dump their feelings and they say, God, I know that you are right. When it comes to what 
the Bible writers were called to do. They didn't consider what they wanted. They heard the call. They answered. They cooperated with God. And they obeyed. And that's why we have the book. Ultimately, it was perfectly displayed in Jesus Christ. John 5, 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Jesus says, I'm just doing what my Father does. And you won't know what our Heavenly Father does unless you're immersed in the Word of God. John 12, 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a command that I should say and what I should speak. You see, Jesus trusted the word of God. And what happened? It led him to the cross, but it also led him to the resurrection and ascending into heaven. And if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you will get the forgiveness of sins, but it's much more than that. You will be raised from the dead and you will ascend into heaven. And see, Peter he trusted Jesus. Peter, Peter trusted the evidence. Evidence is important. He saw the transfiguration. That was the evidence to him. And he trusted the word of God because he knew it was sure. And he knows it's powerful. So let me ask you, friend, what about you? Where are you as far as the Bible goes? Are you picking and choosing? Do you think God got some parts right and some parts wrong? Or, or are you committed to believing the whole thing? John wrote these words in chapter 1, verse 1, very popular words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, the Word was God, with God, and the Word was God. And as you read through chapter 1, it's very clear that the Word that he's talking about is Jesus. So that tells us, Peter's told us, that this word can be trusted. And Jesus living a perfect life, dying on a cross for your sins, rising from the dead, tells us that that word, the word Jesus, the word of God himself, Jesus, can be trusted. And so the question is, do you trust Jesus? Do you trust his word? If you do, confess your sins, put your trust in Jesus, and you will be one of the heaven-bound people of God. Follow him. Follow after his word. But if you don't, and I don't want that to be anybody watching, because if you don't, the second coming of Jesus will not be a day of great victory for you, but will be a day of great sadness. Well, let's pray.